they escorted me and my brother into a small room. Uh, and shortly thereafter, the doctor walked into the room. And as soon as I saw his face, I just knew something terrible. Something terrible had happened. And he sat down and put his head down and just shook his head and he said, I'm sorry, Alex passed away. I, I remember the words, Alex, I'm sorry, Alex passed away. And then I just remember screaming and um, just my whole world, it just was like black and white and flashes of horror, you know, flying in front of my face and through my mind. And um, I just couldn't stop screaming. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. When you have a family member or loved one that needs medical care, and you do the research to find one of the best doctors and one of the best hospitals to provide safe care, you expect that person will receive proper medical support. What you don't expect is that they will kill your loved one. But that's what happened when college student Alex Smick injured his back when he fell off his skateboard and then was prescribed a succession of opioid painkillers. As Alex's mother, Tammy Smick, shares, Doctors were quick to hand out Big Pharma's big-profit opioid painkillers, causing Alex to have a dependence on them. But as a grounded and responsible young man, Alex recognized what was happening and with his parents' support was proactive in seeking high-quality, high-priced healthcare. But as Tammy recounts, within hours of checking into the hospital, Alex was killed by healthcare. The trauma from Alex's unexpected death was deepened when Tammy found out the truth as to why her son died at the hands of doctors and nurses. 
The layers of trauma were further deepened when the doctor's so-called punishment was secured through a closed-door backroom deal that left Alex's family as powerless bystanders. Tammy tells us how she and her husband Tim have responded to the tragedy and injustice and are making meaning in Alex's memory. Tammy shares about their relentless journey through the medico-political-legal systems in their efforts for justice, for truth, and for systemic change so that other families don't suffer the same needless institutional horrors. In the first part of the interview, you'll hear Tammy's neighbor in the background using a power tool to build an arc or something. It's kind of annoying, but it's short-lived and fades away as Tammy recounts Alex's last day. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to Patreon dot com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast and if you need the support of an experienced counselor for medical error for living with chronic illness or for any of life's happenings you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com and now Here's my interview with Alex's mother, Tammy Smick, and a note of caution as always that some folks may be triggered by their experiences with the healthcare system. Great, thanks Tammy. Uh, so tell me, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in Downey, California. It's a, a suburb of Los Angeles and um, it's a nice little community and I had a really wonderful childhood. Um, my father was the provider for the family and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. So I had really involved parents. I lived in a lovely little neighborhood, um, grew up with the same kids and attended school from kindergarten through 12th grade with um, so many of my really good friends that I'm still close with today. So um, yeah, life was good. I had a really nice childhood. Sounds very picturesque. Yes, very much so. Uh, and then what did you do after high school? Um, after high school, I did a lot of traveling. Um, before I went to college, it was my goal to get out and see the world. So I traveled through Europe. I probably went to about 26 countries. Um, I lived in a ski community for, for about three years. Um, I taught snow skiing, worked in the lodge, did a lot of hiking, got to get out there and explore a lot. So um, before I went to college, I was out there doing um, a lot of adventuring. And then I went on to college and then got married shortly thereafter. Okay, so how did a California girl, and to my mind, California is all about sun and beach, how did you end up teaching skiing? <laughs> um, I love the outdoors. 
and um, I love the mountains. Although we lived fairly near the beach growing up, um, Downey is probably about 20, 25 minutes from the beach. So I was used to being you know, near the beach quite often, but we also lived not too far from the mountains. And then I used to ski, snow ski with my family, grew up snow skiing. And then a friend of mine, um, after high school, we would go up skiing a lot. And we just fell in love with um, a mountain community called Mammoth Lakes, which is in the high Sierras. And I thought, oh, I needed to try another adventure. So um, I did that for a while too. Okay. So you go to college and I understand you became a teacher and uh, did. married and you had some kids and that's what we're talking about today. What happened to one of your children? So take us along that story. So, um, Tim and I got married in 1988. Um, I became an instant mom. I have two stepdaughters. They were uh, three and five when we got married. Though they didn't live with us, we saw them every other weekend and then weeks during the summer and all. So we were very close. Um, I, I was very close with the girls. And then um, Tim and I had two boys, Christopher, our oldest, and then Alex, our youngest. He's the boy that we lost. Uh, he was the baby of the family. And um, we had a wonderful, really a wonderful life together, um, raising the kids. We also lived in Downey, this uh, same community that I grew up in. Tim and I bought a home um, a few months after we got married. And we we both had such similar um, upbringings in nice communities with lovely families, and that's what we wanted for our children. So um, we kind of continued along the same path that our parents had. And Tim was working in construction. He was a contractor. And um, I was a stay-at-home mom while the kids were little. And then once Alex, our youngest, got into school, then I became a teacher and taught at the same school that our kids um, were going to, the same school district that I had grown up in. So um, yeah, it kind of came back full circle for us. Oh yeah. And then uh, when Alex was in his late teens, uh, he had a health Problem or he, he, yes, when Alex was um, also um, very athletic, we're all we're a sports family. So our kids grew up playing sports. Alex played uh, football, basketball, baseball, hockey. We rode motorcycles. He water skied, snow skied. So he was a really athletic kid. He also liked, liked skateboarding. And um, he had a skateboarding accident just around the corner from our house and um, had a really bad fall and had a serious back injury. Uh, it, was, it was so bad that the paramedics, paramedics had to come and take him to the hospital. We haggled with the uh, insurance company for quite some time over getting an MRI. Um, they x-rayed and said they didn't see anything wrong with the x-ray. Um, so in the interim, 
he went to physical therapy. He did a few rounds of physical therapy, went to the chiropractor, and then ultimately um, he did have um, an MRI, which showed that he had some um, a stress fracture and some bulging discs in his back. But during that time, he um, was given um, pain medications from his doctor. So at first he was given Vicodin to deal with the pain. And then eventually um, his primary health um, doctor sent him to a pain management doctor to help him deal with the pain. Um, Alex was in college at the time. He um, ironically was um, studying to go into healthcare himself. And the pain management doctor um, was prescribing, he was an anesthesiologist also, he was prescribing Vicodin. Um, he was giving Alex injections in his back to help with the pain. So over the course of about a year and a half, Alex was graduated from Vicodin to um, Oxycontin, Percocet, and the last um, medication that actually got sent Alex to the hospital was morphine. He was 20 years old at the time. Um, I remember the night before Alex had come to uh, us and said, um, you know, I'm on all these pain meds. It's not working. I'm still in pain. He was in college. Um, he said, I can't even stand for my labs. He had just, you know, kind of hit that frustration level. Um, he had also seen some orthopedic doctors, some surgeons who said that he could possibly benefit from surgery, but he was so young that they wanted him to try everything else to avoid surgery. Uh, so when he came to us um, on this one evening and just said, you know, it's so bad, I can't take it anymore. And we said, okay, call, call the doctor tomorrow. Um, my husband and I both went to work and I said, call the doctor tomorrow. Perhaps it's time for the surgery, but um, you know, call me whatever you need me. And he, he went to the doctor um, and unbeknownst to us, the doctor gave him a prescription for morphine and said, here now, basically go handle your pain. It was something that later when I found out about it, it was so shocking how a doctor having this young 20 year old with a back issue, not a, um, not, not a cancer patient or someone who has this like really severe um, health crisis, but a, but a back problem that he was given a, basically a bottle of morphine um, and, you know, sent to try to handle his pain. Alex, he was, he had, um, he was staying with my mom at the time who my mom lived about a mile away. My father passed away, had passed away seven months prior. So Alex was staying with his grandma to help her. And um, that evening, Alex took the morphine and 
as he described to me later, he started feeling some relief. And so he took another and took another. And at some point he realized, oh my gosh, I took too many morphine. And he drove himself to the hospital. And that's when we realized um, that he had a real dependency problem with the opioids. We were, um, we were kind of blind to that whole op opioid crisis because that was 10 years ago. And I, I have become much more aware. And I think we as a community and nation, the world have become much more aware of the opioid crisis, the overprescribing, the negligent prescribing of these um, really strong medications, um, addicting medications. And so then Alex, we all realized, okay, there's a dependency problem and he wanted to get off the meds. They didn't make him feel good. They didn't help with the pain, even though he was continuing his life and continuing to go to school and all, it was just time to get off the meds. And so um, he made the choice to go to a, a, an actual hospital setting that had a, um, a detox, a floor within that hospital that um, had detox in it. His goal was to, to be in the hospital so that he could safely detox off of the meds just in case he had a problem. Um, we had heard that coming off of um, long-term opioid use could have some, some really difficult side effects. So we just wanted him in a safe environment. He, um, we did some research and um, found a really good, or what we thought was um, a good place for him. We um, made some phone calls, also did some research, thought we were sending him to a good doctor, um, a doctor and a hospital who would take very good care of him. He got to the hospital about three in the afternoon we were not allowed to see him that evening, but the plan was that we would come the next day to see him. And I, I called to check in on him and they said, he's doing great. Um, he'll call you back later. We're just, we're doing intake, but you know, he seems great. So um, he'll call you back, which he did. He called me back um, in the early evening, probably sometime after six, um, he was in Laguna Beach in California, a beach community, lovely beach community. Um, the hospital was on Pacific Coast Highway. So his room overlooked the ocean. And he told me that he had just watched the sunset and it was beautiful. And he said he was feeling well. And he was so glad that he had made this decision to go get off of the opioids because he felt like this it was just going to be the turning point that he needed to, to um, continue on with his life and feel better. And um, that was the last conversation that I had with him. He gave me a list of things to bring to him to the hospital the next day. 
Uh, I wrote down that list. I had planned on taking the next day off of work. My husband was going to take a half day and we together were going to drive down to Laguna Beach, which was probably about 45 minutes, an hour from, um, from our home and um, go visit him the next day. That next morning, I received a phone call from the hospital and I will never forget it. It was 7.31 in the morning, um, February 23rd, 2012. Uh, a woman on the other end of the line uh, told me that she was calling from the hospital and that there was an emergency with Alex and that I needed to come to the hospital right away. And um, it was a high traffic time. I told her it would probably take me at least an hour and a half. I would get there as fast as I can. Please tell me what's wrong with my son. Uh, she couldn't tell me. She wouldn't tell me. Um, she said only the doctor could tell me what was wrong. And so I asked to speak to the doctor. She put me on hold. And when she came back, she said, I'm, I'm sorry, the doctor uh, won't come to the phone but you just need to hurry. So um, I called my husband who was in working in Beverly Hills. He was going to have about a two and a half hour drive um, to get to Laguna. We drove separately and um, made phone calls to family members, Alex's uh, girlfriend, as I was driving. And um, I said, I don't know what's wrong, but just go to the hospital. Um, I got there first. I had my brother with me. And um, they escorted me and my brother into a small room. Uh, and shortly thereafter, the doctor walked into the room. And as soon as I saw his face, I just knew something terrible. Something terrible had happened. And he sat down and put his head down and just shook his head and he said, I'm sorry, Alex passed away. I, I remember the words, Alex, I'm sorry, Alex passed away. And then I just remember screaming and um, just my whole world. It just was like black and white and flashes of horror, you know, flying in front of my face and through my mind. And um, I just couldn't stop screaming. And um, I, it was quite a while um, and my husband arrived at the hospital and I remember him coming into the room and he saw me and he saw the doctor sitting there and um, the doctor told him too that Alex died and um, my husband kept asking him, what do you mean, what do you mean? He, why? What happened? And the doctor just kept saying, I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. And then Alex's girlfriend arrived. And I remember that poor girl, they had 
they were planning to get married. They had been together for five years. And I remember seeing her just collapse on the floor. It was, it was just horrible. The family was coming and friends and we were, um, we were in shock, but not so much shock that we couldn't scream and cry and, and, um, then the doctor eventually walked away and the nurse asked us if we wanted to see Alex. And uh, we did, of course. And uh, we were walked into his hospital room. It was very sterile. And um, it didn't look like my son. In this bed, he was... Um, lying on his back, his arms were raised above his head, and he was purple. Um, really the, the worst image a parent mm, could ever have of their child. And I, I why does he look like that? It, it so didn't look like my son with this just purple skin. And the nurse said, well, he, he died on his stomach. And so the blood pooled on the front side of him. And it, I didn't understand. It just it, nothing made sense to me as I'm standing there looking at my, my dead son. <laughs> And um, my husband said, why are his arms above his head? And she said, well, we needed to do CPR. And so you have to put his hands above his head to do CPR. And my husband knew that wasn't true. And he thought, is something so wrong? And he took Alex's hands. He attempted to take his hands and move them down but he was in rigor mortis. He had been dead all night in this hospital room. Um, the coroner came and promised a full investigation. He told us it would take about six to eight weeks um, if they didn't find something in the physical autopsy that would show his cause of death, that it might be in the toxicology. And that talk, if toxicology was necessary, it would take six to eight weeks to get a decision and uh, or find the cause of death. And so um, we eventually left the hospital and went back to my mom's house. And I remember having to tell my mom that our young grandson had died and it was horrible. It was just, everything was horrible. And then having to um, tell my, my son, Christopher, Alex's brother, that his brother had died. He had missed my call to go to the hospital. And um, just every time, have, you know, telling someone to hear the screams, again 
uh, so um, we waited. We waited a long time uh, to find out about the cause of death, but uh, we also had a lot of suspicion that something really bad had gone wrong, but we just weren't sure. We trusted the coroner would do their job, but um, it was suggested to us that we have an independent autopsy, which we did. Um, that autopsy showed that Alex was um, in good physical condition and that nothing physically um, with regard to his heart, his heart was fine his brain like he didn't die of um, something going wrong with his heart or his brain and so that um, pathologist told us that it, the cause of death would most likely then come from toxicology and so he suggested letting the coroner run all the toxicology because you know it, it he said it could go into tens of thousands of dollars and that that was their job then to to, to run that so we trusted them and, and we waited and I called every week. How is the investigation going? Uh, still pending, still pending. At about four months, four and a little over four months, we thought um, something's being hit. We, we felt as if something was being hidden from us because, you know, we were long past the six to eight weeks and, and so we went to a, a lawyer, thought we needed to get some legal advice. We still didn't know that it was, um, you know, medical malpractice at that point, but we just felt we needed some help. And so um, we, we did hire um, a rather high profile um, attorney from Los Angeles who, um, we paid a lot of money to, to do an investigation. At once all of the medical records started coming in, um, that's when all of the negligence was uncovered. And once the coroner realized um, and started getting letters from the attorney, it was as if they, sped up their investigation or started acting. And then that's when we found the cause of death. Um, and it was acute polydrug intoxication from 11 different medications that were given to Alex at the hospital. Um, medications that were contraindicated for central nervous system suppressants, multiple doses of many of those meds. Um, we found that Alex had gotten to that hospital at three in the afternoon. They started medicating him at five. They gave him meds at five, seven, nine, and 11. During those medication um, dispenses, his vitals were also taken. And the medical records show that his blood pressure was going down every two hours. Yet, because the doctor wrote 
in his orders to only check Alex's vitals while awake. The nurse, after giving Alex his last dose of medication at 11 p.m., closed his door and didn't check him for more than seven hours. So as um, he lay in bed during the night, um, we found out later through reports from the hospital in the corner that um, Alex lay in bed, seizing, vomiting, choking, dying, just feet from the nurse's station. Nobody checked on him. Nobody came to help him. And from um, the condition of his body when he was finally checked on during morning rounds around 6.30 the next morning, it was determined that he had been dead for many hours just feet from the nurse's station. What was it like to find out that information? Oh. Um, it was re-traumatizing. I was so filled with anger sadness, grief, and guilt. I struggled with guilt a lot because we had helped send him to that hospital and to that doctor. And we felt as if we were all making a great decision for Alex. I was, I was just, um, I, I just suffered every time I would, uh, would read um, another document, another medication, uh, another piece of negligent behavior on the behalf of the doctor, the hospital, the nursing staff the coroner who wasn't there for us, wasn't there for Alex, um, the hiding of information, the cover-up, it just had so many layers of, of heavy, heavy emotion that um, took its toll. It took its toll on me, on my husband, on on Christopher, Alex's brother, watching us, all, you know, go, go through this. Learning what what they had done to Alex was so traumatizing. It deepens the trauma and the grief of the loss. Yes. It really does. Um, I remember thinking at the time, as hard as it is to lose a child, I, I wished 
he had died in a car accident. I wish he had died of, of as horrible as it is, having cancer. That would have made sense to me. This didn't make sense when you entrust your child or yourself um, to the care of, an, of a, the health healthcare professionals, the ones who are supposed to make you well, the ones you are entrusting with your life, and they are the ones that cause your death. The grief for me was, it was so confusing. It just, it just didn't make sense, but, it, but the anger over it, uh, like I said, it's just, it was just so many different factors, so many different layers of grief and emotion that went into finding out um, all of this information. It's um, betrayal. Yes, definitely betrayal. We definitely felt betrayed by these, by these people, the doctor, the nurse, the hospital. So when you found out that this is what happened to Alex and that his death was really needless, what did you do with that information and when you realized how the system was working? Well, we, we did a few things. Um, one, we uh, filed, um, filed a civil lawsuit against uh, the doctor and the hospital. But that is also when we found out about a 45-year-old law, a law um, that's now 45 years old, was enacted in California in 1975 called MICRA, which stands for Medical Injury Compensation Reform Act, um, that limits the amount of award one can receive on a medical malpractice case for pain and suffering. And in Alex's case, because he was a college student, he, he did not have dependents, he wasn't a wage earner at the time, um, the maximum of our lawsuit against all entities involved was $250,000. And I always say, because we do a lot of work on um, trying to change that, that piece of legislation that is archaic and unjust for so many people in, in, in California, that it's not the amount of money because for us, it didn't matter if it was 250,000 or it was 250 million. There's no amount of money that was going to ease our pain and suffering. Our pain and suffering is going to endure our lifetime. And it wouldn't ease that, the, the amount of money. However, the, the $250,000 cap does several things. And for us, it blocked the courtroom doors for us because it cost about $100,000 to go to trial. And you're fighting against a big insurance industry complex that is, has nothing but money to fight you. Um, and so 
we did put up quite a lot of our of our own money but in the end we had to we had to settle and not that i wanted to go to trial but i wanted them to be held to account i wanted them to have to answer questions not just questions um, from their own side but I wanted them to have to answer questions that I had, that they would have to answer under oath in front of a judge and in front of a jury, in front of me and my family and Alex's friends. Like, tell us honestly what really happened and then let, it, let a jury decide how they should be punished. But without without any accountability, there's no need for them to change. There is no incentive for them to change. And so the negligence is allowed to perpetuate. Our goal by filing the lawsuit was to stop the negligence and to prevent what happened to Alex from happening to another family. Uh, we understand all too well how horrific the pain is, um, how horrific the loss of our son's life, this beautiful young man who was so loved, so wonderful to so many people, and how far-reaching the gravity of his death was. We just wanted to stop that from happening to another. And the micro law prevented us from doing that. And so um, we, we do a lot um, to um, try, we're, we've been working for eight years now to try to change that legislation and we will continue to work as much as we can um, with legislators, with voters, bringing awareness to try to change that law. California is one of um, just three states in the United States that has a cap on medical malpractices at, uh, as low as $250,000. Yeah, I, do I understand correctly that all states have a cap on the amount? Not all. Some states do not have caps um, and, and some do. Some, um, some are, most are higher. California is one of three with the 250 cap. Some have higher caps and some have no caps at all. And initially when that law was enacted in 1975, um, it was supposed to adjust to inflation. And so um, in today's dollars, that $250,000 would be about $1.2 million. So even adjusting to an inflation would would be better than having that frozen, you know, back at two hundred fifty in nineteen seventy five dollars. So that because it seems so blatantly unfair, it would seem an easy thing for the politicians to get behind to make the change because the public's gonna like it. I felt the same way. I really thought, how could any legislator, we're all healthcare consumers, certainly they go to the doctor, they go to the hospital or, or their family members do, 
they don't want to be stuck in the same situation. It's so discriminatory against non-wage earners um, like my son, children, stay-at-home parents, um, uh, seniors who you know are on uh, fixed incomes and don't make much money. It's it's just so discriminatory that I thought, and especially here in California. So um, California has um, a pretty progressive legislature, and I thought, well, certainly I'm going to go speak to my legislators, and they're going to understand, and they're going to fight. They're going to help us make this change. And I was just so surprised, actually quite shocked that um, they have been turning a blind eye to this for so many years, for decades now. You know, I understand that um, legislators are always looking toward their um, next election and who funds those elections and the healthcare industry, the insurance industry especially, um, have a lot of dollars uh, that fund campaigns and or will fund your opponent is what I have discovered. And so uh, legislators are fearful, fearful of that. We, we worked on a campaign um, a few years ago and um, the insurance industry mm, spent, oh my gosh, was upward close to $100 million to defeat um, that ballot proposition that would have, uh, one, one of the pieces of the legislation would have changed this micro law to adjust it to inflation. So lots of money in politics. And I have learned that um, not all good things change bad things change for good the way that they should because of um, money gets in the way. And it's, it's really so sad. Yeah, it sounds like you had the same sort of insight that I gained. I thought, well, as soon as I tell the politician this grave unfairness within the medical system, my job will be done because they'll run and do their job. That doesn't happen at all. I was so naive. Yeah. It, for me too. And, you know, we had a lot of trust. Um, but a, I was very trusting with um, definitely the healthcare industry prior. I had a pretty rosy view of the world um, of government. And I mean, my life was good before this. I, I didn't have much experience that, that was bad or any really need to, to doubt that things wouldn't just go along as they should. And um, so it's been very eye-opening for us. Um, it's ugly. I, I haven't liked a lot of what I have seen and what I've discovered. It makes it hard because I, I look at my son and I'm you know, as we speak, I've got his picture here on my desk and I look at that beautiful face and that beautiful smile and I think, and I, I take his picture with me every time I go to speak with a legislator. And they're kind to me, they're compassionate when I'm telling my story, they feel sad, 
but I feel as if when I leave, um, they're on to something else. There have been a few legislators that um, have gotten on board, but they're far and few between. So if you could magically change the healthcare system around this particular area, how would you design it? Well, a few things. So as you know, I would definitely change the MICRA law, the, the cap on the medical malpractice cases. That is very important to me. But also, I would change the way that the Medical Board of California um, works. Because when you don't have, um, you can't seek justice and accountability in a civil suit. You, or so I thought, you would go to the medical board and they would be the ones um, that would discipline um, a negligent doctor, take their license or act accordingly, um, also nursing board. We filed complaints with both the Medical Board of California and with um, the nursing board. It, the, the nurse who was actually involved, most, most involved was an LVN. And we filed cases with um, complaints, excuse me, with both of those. What's an LVN? An LVN, a licensed vocational nurse. Um, so not quite an R and a registered nurse, but below that. We filed complaints with both of those boards. And I thought, boy, once the Medical Board of California reads all of the documents that were from the hospital and from medical experts, they are going to suspend his license. They're going to take him out of practice. I was... Uh, again, shocked that it, it took four years for them to complete their investigation. And after I filed my complaint, it was two years before the medical board even interviewed the doctor. Meanwhile, he continued to practice. He um, didn't really skip a beat at all. Ultimately, what the medical board ended up doing let me back up just a moment and say that the Attorney General um, of California, uh, along with the medical board, had um, filed an accusation against the doctor, and the accusation um, stated one of the um, things to do would be to revoke his medical license. And so a hearing was scheduled, and we were prepared to go to that, to that hearing in hopes that they would revoke his license. However, um, prior to that um, hearing, a backroom deal uh, took place, one that um, we were not privy to, we were not allowed, um, we weren't even consulted about it. Nobody spoke with us and we found out later that the doctor with his attorney, attorney general's of the Attorney General of California's um, office, and they did a backroom deal, and he got the least form of punishment that a doctor could get, which is called a public reprimand. That discipline 
is really, if you, if you read through the Medical Board of California's um, guidelines, that's for a record keeping mistake. Something, uh, you know, something very simple. It should never involve death. And um, so ultimately that's what the doctor got is a slap on the wrist. It, it's not, it's, I mean, it's on his license as a discipline, but if you, you have to weed through pages and pages and pages and pages of documents on, the, on his license to even find out at the end and the patient died because of what he did. So um, I am I'm doing everything I can also to work on medical board reform because um, Alex's case is just one of many, 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 many cases that the medical board, it was again, it was another, it was, I was re-traumatized by the medical board of California because they didn't do anything to stop this doctor from hurting another family. They, they didn't even have the decency to call me and let me know what was happening. I was at work, I received an email from them that showed me that a decision had been, had been made. I had to open up and read through probably 16 pages to ultimately find out that it was a public reprimand when I thought they were going to take his license away, but they really didn't do anything. I remember again, that day I ran out of work I, I couldn't I couldn't be in my school. I, I ran out and got in my car and started screaming again. I thought they let him get away with killing my son. Yes. And this was year, it took years. It took years to get to that decision. Yes. And it's like, <clears throat> pardon me, it's like the public reprimand, which is such a mild thing. It sounds like it's buried somewhere. It's not actually public. But that decision sounds like it invalidated Alex's value. That's <laughs> exactly what it felt like to me. It felt as if they didn't care that my son had died. They didn't care that the doctor caused his death. They didn't care that the doctor was going to continue to practice and perhaps do the same thing to another patient. They didn't care about Alex at all. And that hurt so badly. I, um, I, I, it just, so when I think about how many people in our government know exactly why my son died, he died at the hands of another person and they didn't do anything about it. I, we even went to the police department by the hospital and they wouldn't even talk to us. They said, oh, the medical board will handle it. I spoke with a member of the California Medical Association. The medical board will take care of that. Every time I reach out for help, we're turned away. And I feel like the system, the systems that are in place supposedly to 
protect healthcare consumers have all failed us and they have all failed my son. It's like they're complicit, not only in Alex's death, but in the future deaths for letting the system continue to operate the way it does. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I've told members of the Medical Board of California, if this doctor harms another patient, the, that blood is on your hands because we did everything that we could do to give you all of the information and they had it all in front of them. They all looked at it, I think, um, or perhaps they didn't when they made their decision. It, it, it just, it shocks the soul. And I keep thinking, oh my gosh, I live in the United States of America. I have a Cadillac health, health insurance policy. I had the best health insurance you could get. I thought, thought I sent my son to one of the best hospitals that you could go to. One of what I thought was the best, one of the best doctors, uh, the cost that was involved in going to this hospital um, was astronomical. I thought, oh my gosh, we did everything that we could possibly do. We had all of the resources at our hands, some resources that many other people don't have the luxury of having. We had all of those resources and this still happened. And then when it happened, nothing, um, nothing took place that would hold those negligent um, people to account. That hurts me every single day of my life, every day. I'm haunted by the fact that um, the people who killed my son go about their lives as if nothing happened. I've even heard the doctor on television bragging that the Medical Board of California only gave him a public reprimand, so even they didn't think it was his fault. I saw that and heard that interview of this doctor on uh, the television. I couldn't believe it. He was, he was bragging as if, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. And like you said, they used the word complicit. Um, the medical board was agreeing with him. Yeah, that's just really shocking to hear that he would have that sort of arrogance in a public manner. So the medical board, what do you hope to change about the, the medical board? Well, I currently the medical board has um, is comprised of um, several doctors, um, California Medical Association members. I would like the medical board to have, although they 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 do have public members, I would like more public members um, involved in the medical board, more patient safety advocates, people like myself who have experienced. Um, medical malpractice, who can can see the other side, and I understand, and I I have, I still have a lot of respect uh, for doctors, 
my own life has been saved by a doctor. My husband's life was saved by a doctor. So I, I have a lot of respect for the industry because I know that so many of them are good. But the negligent ones, um, we can't keep protecting them. It's just like me, I'm a, I'm a teacher. And I don't want my union protecting bad teachers, teachers who harm kids. I, I don't want them protected. They harm my industry, just as bad doctors harm the medical industry. They harm the reputation of the medical industry. And I want the medical board to, to be able to weed them out, to not feel as if they're turning on their, um, their fellow doctor, they, they need to be able to look at it and say, this doctor is dangerous. He's, he killed one. He might have harmed others that we don't know about, but he certainly already killed one. He could do it again. He's got, they've got to be able to look at that objectively and not just say, oh, well, he went to school for all these years to come become a doctor. We can't ruin, ruin his career, but he took a life. So that I would like the Medical Board of California to just have more, um, a more well-rounded board, more, more people involved in the conversation. What did this doctor do? Could it have been prevented? And what can we do to to make the industry safer. That's what I think they're definitely lacking in at this point. Yeah, it doesn't sound like, a, from all the other folks that I've talked to as well, that it doesn't sound like any of these medical boards are intent around making systemic changes uh, towards safety. It's about holding the status quo. And as you were speaking, it's sort of, I sort of thought it's like, uh, doctors are a protected class. You, they're not accountable. You can't really sue them. They're protected like the very wealthy are protected, like the police officers are protected. Uh, it's just a different sort of segment of society that's sort of untouchable. You're right. And I, I think when, when one is protected from accountability when they do harm or when they they do something wrong they they get a bit of attitude that i can continue to do whatever i want because i'm not i'm not going to get in trouble for it and that that creates a really dangerous situation it's just like, it's why we have police officers that pull us over when we're speeding down the street um, and we get a ticket and it costs a lot of money. It, it's to keep you from doing it again and again. And if, if a, a doctor is allowed to cause a patient's death and not be held to account, what's the incentive to change for them? I mean, I would, I would hope, I would, I would hope that this doctor somewhere in the back of his mind would have changed his ways once he, he did what he did to my son. I have no way of knowing that. Um, I certainly don't have the satisfaction of knowing that he received some sort of punishment 
um, and that some governmental agency would be watching to make sure that he didn't do anything wrong. I, I just feel like I, I can't give up and I, I, won't, I won't give up working and striving to change this system and all that's wrong with it. And, and I do that um, a couple of reasons. One, it, it, gives me, um, it gives me something to work toward um, instead of just focusing on the grief aspect of, of losing my son, which I, you know, I grieve every day. I still cry. I cry in different ways every day, but I do it to honor my son and to honor his memory because it gives his life even more value. And he was one of these type of human beings that, um, Alex loved people. He loved helping people. He would, I'd give him money for lunch. And if he saw somebody on the side of the road who needed money or needed lunch, he would, he would use his money to buy a homeless person lunch. He loved helping people and it made him happy. And so I continue this fight always in his memory and always in his honor because I, I know it's what he would want me to do and it would make him happy to know that I, I was trying to um, save others. It, it's, it's what he would do. And I, 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 I know I've said this in a, um, you know, before, but I really had reached this point that my grief was so deep and so horrific that I felt as if I was going to succumb to the grief. The, I just wanted the pain to go away. And I wasn't getting anywhere feeling like that. My other option was to get up and do something about it. And I chose the latter. I chose to do something about it. Fortunately, my husband is on the same page exactly exactly with me. We both have, we're kind of laser focused on what we want and, and, and how we want to enact change. We know what happened to Alex. We don't want it to happen to another. And so we always are looking forward. Um, we have that never give up attitude. It's my hashtag never give up because we, we, we want to continue the fight for Alex. You're making meaning out of your grief and your loss. Yeah. Yeah. I wish it weren't so. I wish I didn't have, you know, I wish I weren't in this position. I would give it all up in a minute and a second to have my son back. I, I don't want to be here. I, I don't want to be the mom who is out there fighting for reform because I lost my son, but because I did, uh, I have to be here. I have to do this. We chatted briefly before we started recording about life changes. And you were saying that you don't really like changes in your life. Um, oh boy, no. But you've really stepped up uh, to this unwanted change. 
Yes, I am um, definitely the person who does not like change. Um, I like consistency. I like security. I like knowing what's coming next. I, I just, I've never liked change. This change was forced upon me uh, so abruptly and it changed my life. Um, it, in a, in a horrific way, but um, it was a change. Um, well, what I did with that, that horrific uh, change in my life was, you know, doing something about it and um, hopefully preventing a horrific change in somebody else's life. Yeah, now you're trying to force change on a system that is very resistant to change. Yes very resistant. I had no idea. We're going to keep moving forward. We're going to keep um, pushing for change. And hopefully we'll see that happen someday and hopefully sooner than later. It's so important. It's so important, um, not only for me, but it's so important for all of us. We're all healthcare consumers. We're, um, most of us are all going to end up at the doctor or in the hospital at some point in our lives. And it's so important for us to know that we're going to go in and we're going to be safe and there's going to be transparency. Those of us that are out there, you know, fighting for these changes, most of us are doing it because um, something bad has happened. You know, it's kind of not something you get into just because, oh, I think I'll go work on patients patient safety. You, you do it because something has happened to make you aware and then you want to bring that awareness to others. So, so true. Yeah. Uh, if people wanted to find you on social media, uh, what's your Twitter and any other social media? Uh, so Twitter uh, at Tammy Smick, T-A-M-M-Y-S-M-I-C-K. It's all one word. That's probably the best way is my, my Twitter. I kind of use that more for my patient safety and um, kind of legislative things that are of interest to me, mostly patient safety. Um, so yeah, those are the, that's the best way. Thank you, Tammy, so much for sharing your story. I know it's not easy to have to recount the, the multiple layers of trauma you experience. What is something nice that you're gonna do for yourself today? Well, um, I, so I think I told you that I don't like change and that we had recently moved. So we, we moved out of Los Angeles um, about nine months ago. And I live in such a beautiful, beautiful area with um, rolling hills and meadows right out the back of my home. And so um, I get to be so fortunate to go out and go on a lovely walk and so that's what I'm gonna go do for myself today is go out there and enjoy nature and go on a lovely hike. Awesome, awesome. Green therapy. Yes, yes, and lots of sunshine. Great, thank you Tammy. Thank you Scott. I can only imagine the depth of sorrow Tammy must experience in losing her son needlessly. But as Tammy says, she and her husband are not going to let the medical system continue to be unaccountable and untouchable 
as they push for reform of outdated laws and policies that limit accountability and limit patient safety. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for medical error, for living with chronic illness, or for any of life's happenings, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.